Welcome to the podcast of Urban Impact Journal. Today, I was joined by Terry Balkas Mitchell. Terry is a developer of affordable housing and mixed-use projects in New York and Connecticut, and is a founding principal of Xenolith Partners, LLC, Xenolith with an X, a very successful woman-owned affordable housing development firm, which is based in Connecticut. We began our conversation by discussing the role of affordable housing in the redevelopment of disenfranchised communities. So it's, it's critical um, now more than ever. Um, I think the whole COVID pandemic is bringing a whole new light to that. Um, but you know, even before this was happening, the disparity in the quality of housing and the number of units available um, in particularly in New York City, but in many markets in the country was really has been skewed heavily out of favor for low income individuals. Most of what we see developed in New York City tends to be market rate, tends to be for higher income individuals. And um, it's a a big part of it is a supply and demand problem. Um, you know, as affordable housing developers, we're competing for many of the same sites as market rate developers, um, but we're, we're hamstrung by many of the regulations, right? And, and the timing challenges associated with affordable housing. All right, so, so what do we mean when we say affordable housing in sure. terms of uh, concept as well as in terms of income levels? For so, New York City, for example. Sure. In New York City, um, the focus tends to be on um, individuals and households earning 30 to 60% of the area median income. Um, for, I'm sorry, know, uh, I'm going to quickly interrupt you. What is the area median income? 80,000? It's, it's 86,000, I believe. 84, 86,000. I know the 2020 figures are coming out and um, I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's We're about 50 grand a year as a household. And lower. And, you know, in many of the communities we're working in, um, households really aren't earning much more than 30 to 35,000 a year. And so that becomes one of the more challenging income ranges to house. Um, it's, it's in many cases, if you're talking about, um, Mott Haven in the Bronx, the median income there is not going to be anything near what you're going to see in Manhattan. Um, there are huge disparities and that's why when, um, you know, when we're talking about qualifying households for AMI ranges, it is, it's based on all of New York city. Um, but you know, as you're a responsible affordable housing developer, you're looking at what the incomes are in the neighborhood you're developing in. So what if you have a family which uh, makes $120,000 a year, and which is still kind of low income, for sure. Manhattan, for example, yeah. uh, there are the teachers that you need and maybe uh, whatever, you know, they just have two incomes, uh, but they can't afford to live in Manhattan. Uh, how are they accommodated? So there are middle income, you know, what they refer to as middle income programs. So these might be the households, which usually refer to as 80 to 130% of the area median income. Um, 
there is more of a focus now on trying to do the deep income skewing to try to target those 30% AMI households. But um, there was a period of time where there was more of a focus or more of a um, incorporation for the middle income households. But what, um, you know, we didn't personally work on projects like that, but what we heard about other developments that were working on that 120% AMI band um, was that, you know, there aren't a ton of units available for households in that income range in the open market, but they're there. And when it comes to applying for affordable housing, it can be quite burdensome in terms of the documentation you need to provide to prove your income. And at a certain point, it might not be worth it. And, and that could be a turnoff for, for people who might otherwise qualify. Right. So what's the percentage of people who actually get affordable housing out of the ones that need it? Yeah, it's very low. It's very low. I mean, we we have um, a mixed income property, so 30 to 90 percent of AMI. It's a small development. There are two small sites in the Bronx, about two blocks away from each other. It's for 30 to 90 percent of AMI. Um, they just started marketing that about two or three weeks ago. And even with the COVID crisis, um, I believe we had 30,000 applicants as of last week. And, and so that's going to be, you know, there's a very long marketing period and it's, it's a very, um, it's a long process because what has to happen is now, you know, the property management firm has to go through, make sure everyone is, you know, individuals are actually income eligible. There can often be a mismatch there. Um, and then, of course, getting the documentation and all of that. But it's 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 very much a lottery, and you know the way like you play the lottery, right? Like, it's very challenging to get it through that process. Right. So you said right before that uh, you're competing against, let's say, against uh, regular uh, market rate developers for acquisition of, pro of, of properties around the city. Uh, do you have a disadvantage compared to them because of the fact that you develop affordable housing? Yeah, so there are a couple there are a couple of things. So I mean in, in a in a higher end market, we're most certainly not going to be able to compete on price. Um, and and part of that is driven by the fact that we're working with public subsidies. Um, and you know they're not public subsidies are not going to pay for you know what you could develop market rate luxury condos on that same land for. Um, but really one of the bigger issues is the amount of time it takes to close on an affordable housing transaction. It can take 18 to 24 months or longer to actually, you know, from the time you start to the time you close on your transaction, um, you know, with, with the agencies and there are bridge loans available. But what we're finding in New York city is, um, you know, and I'm gonna put this in the in the context of pre-COVID because we just don't know what the future looks like right now. Um, but bond cap is really what most affordable housing projects are working with. So it's bond funding that's available in the city of New York towards the development of affordable housing, and it's limited. 
Um, so in Europe, there's issued bonds specifically to fund affordable housing. So they're tax exempt bonds, right? And they have a certain allocation each year, and they manage that in their pipeline. Line, and, line. and they have more um, more projects in the queue than they have funding to actually pay for those developments. So we're hearing so now. Oh, sorry. So we're hearing now it can be two to two to four years before funding will actually be available um, to close on those types of projects. So those go out, you know, those are like municipal bonds. Um, and, and as the developer, it's, it's debt on the property to construct the building. Right. So um, your company is Renolift uh, Partners, right? Um, how was it developed? It's a very exciting looking company. Uh, I know that it's a woman owned, wholly owned, uh, uh, company. Um, I would like to speak a little bit about that. What does it mean for you, if anything, to work for a company like this? And also to hear a little bit about the story of the company and uh, how it developed and what kind of work you do. Sure. Um, so I, I met my partner, uh, Andrea Kretschmer, while working for another developer back in 20, 2011, 2012. Um, and we, we worked for this other company for a number of years. Um, one of the principals there became ill. Um, there was a family decision to wind down the business. And we formed Xenolith in September of 2016. Um, she and I just, we had a very good working relationship. Um, and we have very different skill sets. I have a finance background. She's really business development, environmental. And um, we, we knew there was a lot of good work that could be done. And we had a good network. Um, that we could tap into, and um, we had some projects that we were ready to work on together. So, Xenolith is, is a geological or um, a geology term. Sorry, my my partner is a geologist. I'm the I'm the finance person. Um, so we went through the geology dictionary. And we got very close to the end <laughs> before we found one we liked. But a, a xenolith is a rock embedded within another rock that's visibly different from the others. So the concept was, you know, we're developers just like other developers, but we're a little different. And, you know, at the beginning, it felt simple, like, well, duh, we're women, there are very few women in real estate. But what's, what's developed over time and, and what we feel differentiates us the most is that we're really good partners. Um, and, and that might just be a byproduct of us being women and just being collaborative people. Um, but most, I'm trying to think, most of our projects, the majority of our projects, we are working with nonprofit partners. Um, they, they may have development background. They might really be primarily in the service uh, sector. Uh, we're working with them to develop supportive housing. Um, we have a couple of projects underway, one of them working um, to provide housing for survivors of domestic violence. Um, we're working on a justice-involved supportive housing project. We're working on um, some senior housing, and these are all with nonprofit partners. So that's really become the core of what we do. Is it possible you could explain the process of uh, affordable housing development from beginning to end, just briefly? Uh, both in terms of construction stages, but also in terms of lending. Sure. So what, what was the last thing you said? Lending. 
lending. Yeah, sure. It's um, it's a very very long process, um, but I'll try to describe it briefly. So there, we tend to look at it in two pots. So developments that are under 100 units and developments that are over 100 units. Um, if you have a project under 100 units, you're usually applying for 9% low-income housing tax credits. It's a competitive application round. Um, it's the, both the state and the city offer these applications, and there are a variety of soft subsidy loans that are um, that can be lent to the projects alongside those, and they they're targeted towards different program needs. So some of them are really targeted to supportive housing, which is a huge initiative right now. Some of them are to low and middle income housing developments. There are some home ownership programs. Um, the variety of mechanisms for that. Um, and then for projects over 100 units, that's where you're really talking about the tax exempt bonds that I mentioned earlier. And again, both the state and the city offer those, pro offer those programs. Um, you know, the, the, I think this is the case for most affordable housing developers, but particularly for us, um, a huge part of pre-development is community engagement. So, you know, there are certain parts of affordable housing finance where, you know, you either need um, community board approval or um, approval from your council member or assembly member. Um, but we make an effort to go above and beyond that to talk to hyper local nonprofits and community development organizations or faith based organizations that are really tapped into the community. Um, to provide a broader level of transparency, but also to get real feedback on what's needed in the community, um, particularly when it comes to ground floor community facility uses or commercial uses. So there, there needs to be a good amount of time set aside for that as part of your pre-development process to make sure you're developing a program that actually meets the needs of your community. Um, but during that process, we're doing all of the other pre-development work. So surveys, environmental investigations, geotech, borings, um, developing, you know, schematic plans. And, you know, during that time, we're going to the agencies to get the temperature on, you know, how they feel about this project, because it's, it's a very capital intensive process. And you don't want to get too far along with all of those professionals without having some level of confidence that it's a project that's ultimately going to get funded. Um, and there, so um, I'm just going to go back to the for the projects under 100 um, under 100 units when you're applying for 9% tax credits. There's competitive scoring criteria. It's laid out pretty clearly, so you can. Kind of you follow that and, and you try to follow that as best you can but state and city priorities are always changing so um a, a big part of pre-development is making sure you're tapping into those elements to make sure you're gonna get over the hump um and once you have you know as much of a green light as you can get <laughs> in terms of what you'll get for financing um there are plenty of private lenders in the space um so while you'll get the tax credits um, and the soft loans through the state and the city, you also need a construction loan and a permanent loan. 
Um, we, a lot of affordable housing developers, including us, rely on Community Preservation Corporation or CPC. They're a huge nonprofit lender in the affordable housing space. Um, but, you know, Citibank and Bank of America and TD Bank, they also have their own community development arms um, that lend in this space. So there are there's significant resources, but it's really all about competing for the state and the city sources. You mentioned before something called the bridge loan. What does that say? Yeah, so that was more on the acquisition side. So if you're trying to acquire a private site and you have a seller that can't wait 18 to 36 months to close on the property, then you might take out a bridge loan. Um, so the reason why it takes that long is because the funds take long to be approved to be given to you. Is that, is that right? That? Exactly. I mean, there's just there's a very long queue of projects to get this financing, and this has been a little complicated by the fact that um, both New York City and NYCHA have been RFPing their land to develop affordable housing. And, and so they're doing it, you know, NYCHA, you have to, um, you try to pay them fair market value for the land. HPD conveys the sites for a dollar. So when you stack up a private owned site versus a city or NYCHA owned site, the city is gonna prioritize the municipal land over a private site any day. And, and they've been RFPing a lot of land and we've been fortunate to win some sites too. Um, but it makes the private acquisition space very, very risky. How do, how do developers make money? Yeah, so, um, so in the affordable housing space, when you're using low-income housing tax credits, you're allowed to collect a developer's fee as part of your development budget. So you get a, a small portion of that when you close on your construction loan. Um, you get typically you get the majority of it when you convert from your construction loan to your permanent loan. So your building is all leased up, it's built, you've got your COs, all of that. And then you collect some ongoing cash flow um, during the 15-year tax credit regulatory period. So that's that's the remainder of your developer fee that you're able to collect. So because the rents are so restricted in these developments, the cash flow tends to be pretty low. Um, so the, the majority of your profit will tend to be at that conversion period, um, right. which for, for, you know, for market rate developers, um, you know, cash flow is really where it's at. <laughs> and, um, you know, we've, we've talked to affordable um, market rate developers over the years about affordable housing and what we do and you know when they see the cash flow and how long it takes to get the projects done you know kind of blows their mind like why would i do that <laughs> but um you know it's, it's a different case um affordable housing is sometimes seen as recession proof um you know the the low-income housing tax credit program is is one of the few true bipartisan federal programs. It, it receives support from Republicans and Democrats pretty consistently um, since it's, it's valued as a, a public-private partnership. Um, so from a political perspective, the funding feels somewhat safe. Um, and there's also so much demand in that space. 
um, across the country, but especially New York City. So I, I think for, for market rate developers that dip their toes into the business, that's part of it. Um, for, for Xenolith, um, it's, it's really, it's in our blood. It's just what we've been doing from the beginning of our business and it's, it's evolving over time. Um, you know, some of our projects have small market rate components, but it's usually a byproduct of the, of the financing and it's really used to help develop lower income units if you have those higher rents to facilitate a better development. So you're providing a range of mixed income opportunities in the building. I've heard a lot about mixed income developments uh, in the past where affordable housing becomes part of a larger development project. But most of the time I hear uh, some negative things about it. Yeah, so I you might be alluding to some of like the 80-20 deals that have been done in recent years where it's a, it's a very small affordable component um, related to some of the property tax exemptions that were available in the city. And, and there are some developers who really did really atrocious things, right? The, the, the corridor, you know, I don't know if you heard about that, but you know, it was a market rate development that had affordable units and basically they built two buildings essentially, right? And with the affordable units had one door and one set of amenities and the market rate tenants had another door with better amenities. And, um, that's, just wrong, right? <laughs> but it's um, but I think now the city, through these experiences, um, is implementing more strategies in order to ensure there's better equality um, in terms of provision of services. But isn't, isn't the priority isn't the is the priority of this program to somehow mix incomes together really and to pretend that uh, there is no inequality in this world or is it to provide roof, uh, you know, shelter for people in certain areas in a realistic way? So if this strategy works and developers are willing to, to uh, develop housing in areas where otherwise they wouldn't have. Mm -hmm. so, so I think they're, they're very different markets in New York City. Yeah. And so the mixed mixed income approach only works in certain neighborhoods. So if you're talking about something in Chelsea, right, where rents are extremely high and you have a small percentage of, say you have 20% affordable units in it, um, what, what was happening in recent years is the developer was getting a massive, massive tax break in order to um, develop those affordable units and the, the stance of the city, which I think is fair is if, if public money is benefiting these developments, you should be providing fair housing and that's the driver's fair housing. And so in, in lower income neighborhoods, you're really limited by the the income of the local residents and whatever the market rents are there so sometimes you know in parts of the bronx the the market rent really isn't much higher than 80 percent of ami and for many of the residents there it's still too high but that's that's kind of your upper limit and the concept 
behind providing a range of incomes in the building is that it, it should reflect the entire neighborhood. Um, it hopefully will reflect all of the residents that are there. Um, and, you know, it has to be, it has to be fairly distributed. And I think that's, that's the goal. Okay. Um, so what is your process of uh, finding properties to invest in? And uh, what is your criteria for selecting properties? Sure. So um, it's funny. So before the start of 2020, we were we were looking more at private sites. Um, we, as an organization, as individuals, we've had a lot of success with RFP sites. So sites that were conveyed by cities. So a project we're finishing up now in New Britain, Connecticut. Um, was conveyed by the city. That's a passive house building. Um, the two sites in the Bronx we're working on, those were city-owned sites. Um, actually, our most active sites are, are city-owned sites. And, and so they're relatively low risk um, because you know that they're, they're a priority of the city and the state. Um, and there's also been already public engagement on what's going on in the site, and, and we've continued that throughout the process. Um, we have also, um, we're doing more work with nonprofits redeveloping their sites if they're underutilized. So what we typically look for is a site that can accommodate, uh, I would say 50 to 150 units, um, that lower level gets harder and harder to finance. You know, it's, it's probably, you know, where we said 50, Four years ago, I'd probably say now it's more like 80. Um, they're just, it, construction costs are very high. It's difficult to finance smaller sites. Um, but so say, you know, 75 to 150 units. Um, we, we aren't big on the commercial space. Um, so usually what we'll do with the ground floor is try to implement um, a really dynamic community facility space. So we reach out to local nonprofits um, and we try to craft a program that, that's cohesive for the development. Um, so, you know, we don't like to have it just like, okay, well, you have this group in 2,000 square feet and this in one. Like, we want everyone to work together. It delivers a better, um, it delivers better access to services typically in a neighborhood if, if they speak to each other. Um, so that's, that's part of what we're doing in East New York right now with, um, a site that we won from the state. It was part of the vital Brooklyn initiative. Um, so the, the RFP specified that it should be for, um, for justice involved supportive housing, which is what we're doing. We're working with the women's prison association and the Osborne association. Um, and there will also be community facility space that will offer services for people in the community. Um, and we've also brought in some local, um, local groups that offer fitness classes. So, you know, part of the challenge for them is they don't have permanent space. Uh, they've been crying out for it for a long time. And um, by partnering organizations, we can have flex space where where they can have use of it, um, and it's something that's visible and it's something that's new, and it's um, and it helps them meet their mission because they're small groups. It, in 
you know, one of them is a nonprofit. Um, they really just take donations to run the classes. And, um, but it just, it provides better options in the neighborhood. Those are our favorite types of developments. And most of your properties, are they rental properties or are they for sale or what? We do, so we just do rental housing. We do affordable rental housing. So per square foot, how do they compare market rate versus your affordable housing? So, yeah, you know, I don't know the per square foot number off the top of my head, but I know, so we're working, we're actually working on two sites um, on East New York Avenue in, in that neighborhood. And there was a market rate building constructed across the street from where we're working. And I think their rent, like their one bedroom units, I think they were trying to rent them for like, 16 or 1800 a month or something like that whereas for one unit for one bedroom unit and you know i don't know how much luck they're having <laughs> with actually renting up that building but it's extraordinarily high for what's for what's affordable for people living in that neighborhood um and so for an affordable housing development you know depending on your income tiering um you know, you'll have units that are, you know, maybe $600 a month up to, you know, maybe $1,200 a month. It, it's, it's a big range. So on, on average, you're looking at about 25% less than market rate? There must be some kind of... Uh... Yeah, I mean, again, it really, really depends on the neighborhood. Depends. So yeah. in in the Bronx, um, where, you know, there are parts of the Bronx, so the market rate rents are quite low compared to other parts of the city and in you know for, for example this building that the buildings that we're leasing up now we do have 80 and 90 percent ami units that are essentially priced um near market rent so mm -hmm. um you know and what's the, what's the difference in the benefit of the community in that particular case yeah so there you know because we had a lot of discussions we're actually in two community boards two buildings two different community yeah. boards uh, unfortunately, the same council member and and these were city owned sites and they were actually it was a multi phase. So we didn't work on the first phase. The first phase was the low income phase and the intention of these two buildings was originally to have them be home ownership. Um, but then after the recession, the goal was to have it be middle income housing and um, what it ultimately turned into was this mixed approach where, you know, we, we met with the community board and what we heard was that, um, you know, there were a lot of, there are a lot of public housing units in that district and they felt like most of the new affordable housing was just for the 30 to 60% AMI folks. And for people, you know, for an individual who's making more than that, you know, who's maybe working in Manhattan or, you know, who's making 60 or 70,000 a year, they can't qualify. And so they, they can't afford to live in the city and they can't afford to, they make too much to stay in their neighborhood. So what we heard was that there was some desire to have some of these middle income units for for these individuals who were making more um, and wanted to stay because it does you know the site does have good access to transportation um, you know it's new new construction um, they're they're tiny buildings so they don't really have much <laughs> amenities you know it's not it's not a, you know a giant gym or anything like that um, but it's beautiful new construction it's energy efficient um, and 
it's replacing what were just garbage filled lots for right. the past 30 years. Right. So they, the, the, the true benefit of the community is that the community does not disintegrate. The people don't leave. That's the true benefit. Well, just... I think it's part of it is retaining, right, retaining local residents. I mean, that's a common thing that we heard. And and part of um, part of the development, too, is that there are 15% um, of the units are for homeless households, too. So it's really, it's touching upon a really big range of income populations in the neighborhood. We, the only site where um, we're really seeing Section 8 is um, a, a, an affordable senior development that we're working on. So HPD has a program called SARA. Um, it's, um, it's just focused on senior housing. And part of that, part of the program is that they provide project-based Section 8 vouchers for all of the units. Because what, um, what they were finding over the years was that AMI levels for seniors, in many cases, they're really not anywhere above 40% of AMI. So the broader affordable housing programs were not meeting the needs of those residents. So what they do now is they have um, project-based Section 8 associated with it, um, which also means that it becomes a prevailing wage construction job. Um, so it does add a lot of cost to the to the construction process as compared to non-prevailing wage sites. There's also tenant-based Section 8, um, which we um, we have heard, you know, we're doing the marketing for this building in the Bronx, and we've heard that many of the homeless referral, homeless unit referrals may have tenant-based vouchers. Um, so that, you know, that, that would, you know, address their need to cover rent. Um, and, you know, it helps address building operations as well, but, you know, they're in short supply. Um, the, the only new vouchers that I really hear becoming available is through these senior programs. And then, you know, other projects may get a small handful of them, but it's, it's not widely distributed. What is it called? LIHTC? Is it the uh, Low Income Housing? What are they? Low Income Housing Tax Credit. Right. So, how does this process, how does this work for the developers and for nonprofits and whatnot? Mm -hmm. how, how does the whole LIHTC process work? Sure. So, each state gets, um, gets an allocation of federal low income housing tax credits each year. And then the states, issues through a qualified allocation plan um, with competitive criteria, they issue those to developers each year. So it's a very formal process. There's a lot of documentation, a lot of paperwork. Um, and as a developer, when you receive an award of the low income housing tax credits, um, what you do is you engage, you know, along with all your other um, soft subsidy providers, you engage a bank, usually, or a tax credit investor. And what they do is they buy those credits, um, you know, in some cases more than a dollar. And so they're able to write off their income, you know, on their, their corporate income. And in exchange, we get equity to build the developments. And in many cases, that equity can be 50 to 60% of the total capital stack to build the project. So it's it's a really big, it can be a very big cash infusion infusion for the project. 
um, and is a really valuable resource. Um, the, the way the credit is allocated, it's, um, it's a 10 year credit. Um, so the, but the, it's a 15 year regulatory period. So from the time you start operating your property for the next 15 years, you're, you're still engaged with that investor. Um, they're involved in asset management. And at the end of 15 years, you'll have some sort of capital event where you'll take them out. So it will either be a refinance of the property or potentially a sale. It really depends, but it's a, it's a very long-term relationship. So Terry, last question. I'm just curious what your favorite uh, project has been so far in your career? I have a lot. Um, they tend to be driven, you know, I, I have, three that I'm working on right now that that I love because they're with really passionate nonprofits with executive directors and boards that have these fantastic missions. Um, you know, one of the sites is on East New York Avenue in Brooklyn. Um, the, the nonprofit there is called Family Services Network of New York. And they, they started in the 80s. They were really focused on addressing the HIV AIDS crisis at that time. And they've expanded their services uh, over the years. And, and they bought a former police station to develop into a community facility. And, um, and then ultimately found out it's just riddled with asbestos. And, it was going to be too expensive to fit out. So we were introduced to them a number of years ago. And so we've been working with them to try to get that financed. And um, they, they have been holding out for a long time to turn this into affordable housing. They could have sold many times over to do market, you know, to sell it to a market rate developer. Um, but they really believe in the mission of providing affordable housing in that community, of providing more health services. Um, they're very engaged. So we, we feel, I mean, we love them. <laughs> and we, you know, we, we get emotionally tied up in these projects. I mean, that's, it's just a fact. We get emotionally tied up. But we try to be, you know, when we're looking at it, we try to, you know, we need to manage risk. We need to be responsible. We need to, you know, be um, be prudent about putting together a capital stack. Um, but the truth of the matter is once we get over that hump, we're just all in with our hearts because that's what they're doing. And if we can amplify what they're doing in a community, I mean, that's that's huge for us. That's, that's a goal for us. And we're, we're working with a YWCA up in Schenectady um, to redevelop their site. And um, they're also just a group of really badass women, you know, like they're doing, they're doing fantastic stuff. And, and um, despite all of their challenges in, in, you know, of trying to develop in that community, um, their one goal is just provide more resources for survivors of domestic violence. It's what they do. Um, and, and so we're really working hard to try to help them do that. So. And one more question that just came to me. Uh, what do you think women bring to development that men don't? <laughs> so, hmm. If anything, maybe nothing. 
Yeah, no, I, 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 I think we do because I, you know, as a woman, I always want to be treated fairly, you know, I don't want to be prejudged or anything, but, um, but I think a lot of times we maybe bring a little more empathy to the table, um, than others might. And, and like I said, we have to be, you know, we have to be fiscally responsible and, and make sure we're managing a project well, but, um, Do you feel women tend to be more empathetic than men? On occasion. It depends. It depends. You know, I mean, we've worked, believe me, we've worked with plenty of men that are very empathetic. Um, you know, we've, we've had some fantastic male partners and we, we benefit from some really great relationships with men and women that are just doing very good work in the affordable housing space. So we, we try to identify like-minded individuals because um, like I said, it's, it's a long-term process. We're going to be engaged with each other for a long time. So we have to make sure we can, we can trust each other to do good work.